thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Oh, hello, Frank. I'm told, Chris, that um, the World Health Organization has the sleeping sickness as one of the diseases that it wants to eliminate. And there is excitement around, you know, the world of science by a recent discovery. Please share with us what this discovery is all about. Indeed. Well, sleeping sickness, first of all, what's the scale of the problem? Well, there are potentially 61 million people across more than 30 countries in Africa who are susceptible or vulnerable to becoming infected with sleeping sickness, which also goes by the name the African trypanosomiasis. And trypanosomes are microscopic, wiggly, worm-like parasites which are spread by the bite of a tsetse fly. And this is one of the diseases that the World Health Organization has on its radar as something it would like to wipe out. But in the past, they've become or got very close to wiping it out and not quite made it. And then the disease comes back. And one of the big questions is, where does it go? Where does it come back from when they nearly eliminate in some areas and then eradicate more globally the problem? Well, there's a piece of research which is published in the journal eLife in the last month or so by a parasitologist from the University of Glasgow. Her name is Annette McLeod, and she has discovered another place in which the trypanosome parasite can hide so that a person can carry it. They can be apparently healthy, but they can still infect a tsetse fly and therefore spread it to other people. Now, what she's done is to take these parasites, trypanosomes, and genetically modify them in her laboratory so that they glow either a red colour or a green colour. And you might say, why on earth would you want a fluorescent parasite? Well, this means that she can then infect animals like mice with these parasites via the bite of a tsetse fly. And then because they glow, she can see where in the body they go. And by doing these experiments, she has found that some animals, some mice, develop an infection with this bug where the animal is apparently healthy or appears to have got rid of the infection. But if you look in its skin, you can still see these parasites. And because they're hiding in the skin, when a tsetse fly comes along and bites them, unlike mosquitoes that don't thread a long tubular drinking straw into a blood vessel to drink, tsetse flies have sharp mouth parts that cut through skin and blood vessels to slash open blood vessels and, and draw blood. So this means that when they bite, they slash through the skin and they also have the ability to take up these parasites hiding in the skin. And they've been able to show that this could be one important reservoir for where the disease can hang out. And it means we need to test the drugs that we give people to make sure that they do work against parasites that hide in the skin. It also means we need a way of testing for people who might be carrying this illness because at the moment the way they do this is they just look in the blood. And if a person has negative blood, 
they're assumed not to have the disease. In fact, they could have the disease and it could be hiding in their skin. And Annette McLeod is going to Gambia later in the, well, in the next six months or so with a device she has made and designed herself that uses light to look into the skin of people who may have had sleeping sickness to see if they have parasites hiding in their skin like this so that she can then give them or arrange for them to receive treatment that will clear the parasites from their body and protect them, but also protect anyone who they might then give the disease to in future. So, great story. Wow, an amazing story. And it looks like you know, it will make a big impact in the world of, in terms of you know, eliminating this disease from the, as the World Health Organization has set out to do. Let's hope so. Okay, I've got my own question, Chris. Maybe you can start with me. And then we will open the line for our callers. You know, I'm quite familiar, Chris, with the theory of evolution, but I've always wondered, how did speech develop in humans? Well, this is a, a very contentious question and a really hard question to answer because we don't know for sure. But, but what we can do is to look at what evidence has been provided to us from a number of different sources and, and origins. One is genetics, because the DNA that's carried by all of us bears a message about our heritage. Where did we come from? And by reading the genetic code, because you get your DNA from your parents and they got it from their parents, we can learn a lot about where people came from, where they went and where they grew up by looking at the sorts of genes and combinations of genes that people carry. That tells us a bit about how the world came to be how it is today. It also tells us that the closer we get to Africa the wider the genetic diversity becomes. And what that tells us is that there must have been an origin of some kind of Garden of Eden, if you like, based in the African continent in various places, which probably ultimately gave rise to the people we have around today because the further you go from your origin, the lower the level of genetic diversity you would expect, and that's what we see. So we think that modern, anatomically modern humans evolved in the African continent. They probably evolved in a series of, of, of slow evolutionary steps which probably involved nature doing a lot of experiments in parallel where animals like us and very similar to us, we were all knocking around together in Africa, and slowly there was probably intermixing, interbreeding, there was selection for the most successful forms and types, because these were hard times to live in. Everything was trying to eat you. We were very vulnerable, but what we were, were a social species, so we could rely on the help of others, and, and that became one of our major strengths. And by about 50,000, 60,000 years ago, people began to exit Africa, and then went around the world. But what we're relying on to unpick that story further are fossils and fossil evidence, and there's not many of them. And scientists are finding more all the time, but at the same time there are still big gaps. And so our understanding of exactly how we came to be and where we came from is still quite fragmentary, and it needs those gaps filling in. But it would appear that we evolved from an ancestor we sh shared with something like a chimpanzee today about six million years ago, and that slowly over that six million years there's been a refinement and a selection to arrive at the forms and the, the diverse forms that we have today. Ah, great. Thank you for sharing that, Chris. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. The time is 16 minutes past the hour of 10 o'clock. You're listening to the Reedy Slabby Show on 702 and Cape Talk. My name is Frank Maguegue, and I'm the Friday stand-in. Please join in in our conversation. I'm talking to the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. If you are calling from Cape Town, call us on 021-446-0567. That's 
They are calling from Johannesburg, 011-883-0702. And please also remember to send us SMSs on 31567 and 31702. And I see there's a, a, a quite a number of calls already waiting. I've got Gareth here in Bryanston. Gareth, what is your question for the Naked Scientist? Hi guys, I have a question about aquaponics. I'm trying to build a system at home and I'm struggling a little with the fish fertilizer and trying to understand the interplay between bacteria and the fertilizer. Um, What sort of fish food would you need to get your nitrates and why do you need the bacteria? Is it not possible just to uh, use bacteria for the processing to get your nitrates? Oh, hi Gareth. Um, I'm not completely familiar with what what it is you have in mind, but I'll speculate. Um, When you feed fish, the reason that you need a filter system on your pond if you have a reasonable number of fish in a reasonably small pond is because, like any living organism, including humans, when fish pee out urine, it's rich in nitrates, nitrogen, in the form of things like urea. Now, the nitrogen that's in the air, N2, is molecular nitrogen and it's inaccessible to plants and it can't be used as fertiliser. But when it gets fixed into a form like in urea, it's in a bioavailable form and it can be used. And if there's a lot of nitrogen around, plants love it because they can use that nitrogen and they can put it into their proteins, for example, and plants grow like mad and then we eat the plants and that's how we get the nitrogen. Now, if your fish are peeing out lots of nitrogen from their metabolism and you don't get rid of it, then the plants in your pond are going to go nuts and very quickly you'll get algae, bright green pea soup-like pond and any other water plants you have there are going to grow furiously. So what people who own ponds do is they have a pump and they push the water from the pond up through a filter and one of the things that filter does, often there's a UV clarifier on there which kills off the algae, but then it pushes the water through an oxygenator, saturating the water with oxygen, and then shoves it through um, often a series of beads or they, things that look uh, like a bit like pasta shells, actually. But what they are are surfaces, because you want a very big surface area, and you then end up with nitrate-digesting bacteria living on those surfaces and they break down the excess nitrates and then you return the water deprived or uh, reduced in nitrates back to the pond water. Now, if you're trying to grow plants with the water, the alternative is to say, well, why don't we feed this nitrogen-rich water off to our plants, trickle it through the roots of plants, and rather than feeding bacteria, we feed plants. The plants will pull the nitrogen out of the water, and then the denitrified water we just flush back into the pond. So the, the bottom line here is that the fish are the source of the nitrogenous compounds, including things like urea, and the plants get rid of it for you. And instead of using bacteria on a filter system, you you use the roots of plants because the plants actually have um, the ability to pick nitrogen up, but some plants also can fix more nitrogen from the air. So you choose your plants carefully and you choose ones that that don't uh, get their own nitrogen. You want them to pull it all out of the water and then you just trickle the water through their roots. Okay. Ian in Renberg, what's your question for Dr... Chris. Hi, good morning, Dr. Chris. Can you hear me? Hi, Ian. Hi. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask you, um, there is a, an American company that claimed that they use human um, adult stem cell technology to produce and manufacture their anti-aging and anti-reversing um, gels and lotions. And they produce a thing called uh, growth factors. Um, is that a true statement? Can they actually do that? Um, I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. 
Hello, Ian. Um, there's a number of different compounds on the market that ostensibly, allegedly have these anti-aging or anti-wrinkle effects. People have subjected them to some clinical trials. Some do work. And they work by using things like growth factors or growth-promoting chemicals, which encourage some of the production in the skin of the things that young skin has more of than old skin. What are they? Well, as your skin gets older, you tend to produce fewer elastic fibres. There's a protein called elastin, which makes skin springy, and the amount of elastin drops with age. Your skin also has collagen in it, and this is the stuff that is capable of giving or, or responsible for giving the skin its integrity. That, too, drops with age, and so your skin tends to become saggier and thinner and easier to damage as you get older. So if you can increase both the ratio of elastin to collagen and uh, the overall amount of collagen in your skin, this will make your skin more like it was when you were a baby and less like you are when you're older. And so that's what people are seeking to do with some of these anti-aging creams. And you also try to push more water into the skin because if you push water in, water takes up space and that plumps the skin up and makes it less wrinkly. Some of these things work the vast majority don't work because a bit like weight loss things and vitamin pills, there's a huge market here. Lots of people have an agenda and lots of people want to separate you from your contents of your wallet and not a lot of them are based on good, sound, solid evidence. But some are and some do have a modest effect. But if you're really, really desperate, the best way not to get old looking is don't smoke, number one, because smoking has a very, very profound ageing effect on skin, very, very profound ageing effect on skin. The other is, if you are not endowed with natural built-in sunscreen in the form of dark skin, then minimise your sun exposure, because ultraviolet exposure has a profound ageing effect on skin as well. So, exposure to sunlight carefully, use sun cream if you're going out in the sun for a really long time, and don't smoke. Mariel in Johannesburg, you want to comment on aquaponics? Yes. Um, I just wanted to add to what the naked, naked scientist was talking about in terms of the nitrogen in the water. So I've been keeping fish for many years and I understand the bacterial side relatively well. In terms of uh, the waste that the fish could use, it's not only in the urine, but it's also in the feces of the fish. They first excrete um, waste in the, in the form of ammonia, which then um, requires aerobic bacteria to break down the waste further into a nitrite um, form and then requires anaerobic bacteria to break down the waste further into a nitrate form. So the reason I suspect that the caller's fish were potentially dying or that the plants weren't um, flourishing in the absence of bacteria because um, to the fish, the, the ammonia and the nitrite is um, highly toxic. So if there's a spike in that due to overfeeding or because the tanks haven't been cycled and there aren't sufficient bacteria, then the, the fish can actually die within a very short period of time. It can be within a, a few hours. And then um, once the, the waste has broken down into nitrate, that's much less toxic to fish, and then that's a consumable form for the plants. Um, so um, that's basically how it would happen um, from a fish and plant's point of view in terms of the symbiotic relationship they have. Uh, thank you, Mario, for that. Uh, Dr. Chris, you want to comment on that? 
Well, all I can add is that it takes a while for the relationships to build up because when you have a source of food, like a source of, of nitrogenous waste from fish, you don't just magically have the, the bacteria there that are capable of breaking it down at the right concentrations and in the right place. And it slowly takes time for these communities to build up and to, to begin to provide the sort of cycle that's needed. So one should therefore not just turn everything on and go, right, that's fixed, sorted it will take a while for everything to settle down and so sometimes what people do is introduce a small number of fish to a pond and or a system let the environment settle down and then slowly as it equilibrates you can increase the number of fish up to the capacity of the pond and up to the capacity of the filtering or handling capacity of the ability to keep the water clean because those communities need time of those of microbes that do these important chemical changes it takes time for those to build up Okay, thank you. Mevin in, in Cape Town, thank you for being so patient. Go ahead, please. What's your question? Hello, Dr. Chris. Good morning. Dr. Chris. Hello. What's your question, Mervin? Oh, hi, Dr. Chris. I think you're fabulous. I wonder if you can solve this one. I have a partner who has been suffering for many, many years with allergic reactions. And... Uh, um, you know, uh, to pollens and various other, which results in sinusitis and then infection, hay fever, rhinitis, etc., etc. And in over the recent, over the quite lengthy past, he's been treated by use of cortisone, by injection, or prednisone tablets, etc., or drops containing cortisone. Very recently, she developed a major reaction to cortisone, and this manifested itself by way of absolutely blinding headaches, which, according to Google, is a sign that you are reacting to the cortisone and a dangerous reaction. You must immediately desist from taking it. Is there anything one can use in place of cortisone? I'd be very surprised if... It's just the cortisone doing that because cortisone is also goes by the name cortisol and it's a hormone which is naturally produced in your body by your adrenal gland. It's absolutely critical for life. If you didn't have it, you would die. Um, therefore, th th it's very unlikely that that molecule is causing the problem. Therefore, something else could be doing this. Now, is it that just taking excess cortisone is causing the headaches, or is it that there's something in the preparation which the cortisone comes with which is causing the reaction? Certainly, if reactions are happening and they are tethered, every time I do this, I get this happening, there is a relationship there, something's going wrong, and it definitely needs investigating for safety's, safety's sake and to make sure that nothing bad is going to happen. But um, I, I would certainly not, uh, not bl immediately blame an allergic reaction to cortisone. I, I suspect there might be something else going on there that needs looking into. There are other steroid preparations that can be used instead of cortisone. As you said, you named one of them, prednisolone is one example. There are others. There are other ways also to combat allergic reactions. And it would certainly be worth going to see an allergy specialist to see if some of the triggers can be better controlled or minimised. OK, Mike, in table view, what's your question for Dr Chris? Hey, how's it, Chris? Uh, thank you, fantastic. Um, Chris, I have a question regarding UV lights. I work in commercial extraction and they have a system where these UV lights are designed, <clears throat> are designed to vaporize 
the fat as it goes into the canopy before it enters the ducting. Is this, is this possible, and how how does it vaporize effect? How does it work? What is the reaction? Can I listen on the radio? I'm, I need a little bit more clarification on exactly what it is you're referring to here. Can you tell me a bit more? I don't understand the, the question. Okay, it's for commercial cooking in restaurants and stuff. They have okay. a series, a bank of UV lights. So as the fat from the cooking goes up into the, into the canopy and into the ducting system, the UV lights are designed, or they, they say they're designed, to vaporize the fat before it goes into the ducting. Do you know anything about okay. what... Well, I, I don't know anything specifically about that application, and if anyone does know more, do tell me. But what I will speculate is that ultraviolet UV is high-energy light. So when you cook food, you're putting infrared energy in. Ultraviolet is much shorter wavelength, and it's a more powerful form of radiation. It packs a bigger punch, and it's capable of initiating various chemical reactions. One thing it might be doing when, when you especially with short wavelength, things like UVC radiation, when molecules go into a source of UV, they can become ionised. In other words, you change the molecule chemically, making it much more reactive, which means that it will react with other things around it and break down. And it may well be that some of these fatty molecules, which are already vapour, they're already in a, in a vaporous state because otherwise they wouldn't be going up into the canopy, it might well be that the energy from the UV is photoactivating these things and then when they try to settle on a surface they're already much more reactive so they just react with other things around them and break down and wipe and wash away easily they're doing a similar sort of thing in london on king's cross station where they built the a brand new railway station and this is used in a number of buildings these days you have self-cleaning glass and there are particles of titanium dioxide on the surface of the glass which captures ultraviolet energy and it feeds the ultraviolet energy into dirt particles which are on the surface and those dirt particles then become much more chemically active they're reactive is in the form of free radicals fed into them from oxygen in the air it reacts with those particles breaks them down and then when it rains it washes off all this stuff instead of it sticking dirtily to the glass i suspect that there's something similar going on in your cooking system so chris thank you as usual an amazing show thank you for your insights you really help us you know get get closer to the world of science and to 702 listeners you always come up with brilliant questions thank you so much we look forward to chatting to you again uh, dr smith it won't be me though in the hot seat <laughs> Well, it's been fun, Frank. Thank you very much. See you soon. Thank you. The time is just after 10.30. My name is Frank McGregor. I'm the Friday stand-in on 702 and Cape Talk, and that means time for Eyewitness News Headlines with Aurelie. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.